Hey, if you're a leader and you're looking for a mentor and you're not really sure what you should search for in a guy or a gal to lead you, well, you have a chance to learn from one of my mentors. Larry Moores was my boss in Somalia. He was a leader, but he was also a guy that I tried to model my life after. And I am honored to introduce you to one of my mentors, Larry Moores, on this episode of Unbeatable. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life. You're listening to Unbeatable with Jeff Strucker. Hey, Larry, I can't tell you how much I've been looking forward to the, to having an episode with my former boss and a guy that I really, really look up to. Thanks for joining me on Unbeatable. Well, thanks for having me. I, I When I saw your podcast kicking off, I said I, I better get on now while I can before he uh, has too many good leaders on there, and then I, I don't make the cut anymore. So Yeah, well, you, well. you know you would always make the cut with me. <laughs> Hey, um, you want to talk a little bit about playing hockey in school before you joined the military and then swinging the golf clubs a little bit during and after the military? Sure. Um, again, I, I, I grew up as a, a kid in uh, central Connecticut, um, played a lot of sports as a kid. And we, we try and have that same uh, identity with our children today. Um, I've always thought that team sports is, is good at that, yeah. that, a good part of that foundation and, and growing, uh, into, you know, future position. So, uh, we played baseball, hockey, soccer as kids, um, trying to find one that we liked and we thrived in, um, hockey seemed to stick with, uh, my brother and I, and then, um, I have a, an ugly golf swing, sort of like a hockey swing. So it transitioned pretty good. So uh, <laughs> you are the original <laughs> happy Gilmore is what you're telling me. You're the original happy Gilmore. Happy, yeah. yeah. Never fought with Bob Barker. Though, yeah. so we'll, we'll have to get that on the, uh, That's on right. the resume somehow. So. Well, obviously, for people that don't know us, you and I have a long past together. So we're not really getting to know each other for the first time. I just want people to understand a little bit about your background. Um, tell everybody what prompted you to join the military. I come from a long uh, family of, of military service. My, my dad, I was born into the air force. My dad was serving mm -hmm. in Oklahoma. Um, so I, I was born as an air force brat. Uh, every male in our family served at least one uh, tour in the military uh, all the way back to, to world war one. So wow. it, it is a, a neat family history. Yeah. Uh, my brother was a cadet at West point uh, when I was in mm -hmm. high school and I, I, I played a lot of hockey in school and sports and, probably should have studied a little more instead of skating more. Uh, <laughs> but I, uh, I, I talked to my brother, he was home on one of his, uh, trips, uh, weekends off from, uh -huh. from the Academy. And they, he gave me some great advice as a, as a young kid, you know, I, he said, if you're going to go into the military, you know, go into a good unit and then you'll build a, a solid foundation. Uh, so you'll have that foundation. If you decide to get out and go to college, uh, you'll be better because of it. And if you decide to stay in, then you've got a, a good foundation. So I, I found myself with an enlistment, you know, directly to the first Ranger Battalion in, yeah. in 1982. And it was just an amazing entry, uh, an amazing time and, and, a, and a perfect start to what ended up being a career in and out of the Rangers. Yeah. Um, and not only did you enlist and go straight to the Ranger Regiment, but you went to the 1st Ranger Battalion and were in the, the unit preparing for and eventually taking part in the invasion of Grenada. Uh, for a lot of the listeners, they don't know what Operation Urgent Fury is. So can you give everybody like a couple of uh, short 
description of what urge, what prompted the U.S. to to send um, warriors to Grenada, but also your role there. Sure, uh, the uh, invasion of Grenada was the fall of 1983. So September, October, it started to spin up some. Um, the there was a uh, a medical school campus uh, on the island, not far from the runway. Uh, and the, the dictator that lived there had taken over and, and there was some thought that the medical students would be at risk. So uh, the mission was put together for an airfield seizure and mm-hmm. then subsequent uh, removal of all the, the American citizens uh, off the island. So it was a, it was a fairly quick operation uh, back then. Uh, but one of the first uh, missions after uh, Desert One, uh, the Iran mission, uh, so trying to build on continued successes for the special operations and integrating um, aircraft and Navy vessels, uh, dif- different types. Uh, I was a young rifleman at the time. It was an amazing experience and an opportunity to see uh, what right looks like. So I, 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 I followed those leaders because they always set such a good example. Uh, you know, the late Bill of Seabees was oh, my yeah. first uh-huh. sergeant, just amazing. And, and General Barno, um, retired General Barno was yeah. our company commander. So again, two role models, along with the myriad of of corporals and sergeants and and staff sergeants in the platoons that that really trained you and, and taught you everything you needed to know to be successful. Yeah, um, I, Larry, you know this, but for the listeners, I joined the army not long after you, a few years after you, and kind of followed the same path, enlisted straight to the Ranger Regiment. And I had the privilege of showing up to the Ranger Regiment with a handful of guys that had taken part in the invasion of Grenada. And those were the guys that I really looked up to. I was a huge, I was hugely influenced by the Rangers that took part in that operation. And they had a big influence on me. And like you, I had some of those guys next to me the first time I went to combat in uh the invasion of Panama, there was some Grenada Rangers right next to me, kind of walking me through my first firefight and helping me to know how to respond and what to expect. And, and, and I, I wouldn't be the guy that, that I am today without some of those early mentors in my life. They were a, a great bunch to work with. Again, those were, those were my first interactions with them. But if you, if you go back a, a few years to Grenada and the, and the desert one, but mm-hmm. some of our senior NCOs and, and some of the officers at the time were, were Vietnam, Vietnam veterans guys, as well. So right? Yeah. They were the ones that we looked up to. So it was a very similar sequence of events. We, yeah. You followed those guys who had been there before because they had an understanding of how they would react uh, when, when the bullets were going the opposite direction. One of the privileges about being a warrior in combat is having those guys like you did, Vietnam vets that could kind of be next to you in the invasion of Grenada. I had Grenada vets that were next to me in the invasion of Panama. And I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but that when you and I were preparing to go to Somalia, virtually everyone in that unit didn't have combat experience. So I grabbed my squad, pulled them in close and did for them what those Grenada vets did for me, what those Vietnam vets did for you. And I think that tradition has carried on for generations in the U.S. military. I, I think there was some acceptance, too. You, know, you, you, you did a great thing there, pulling the, the young Rangers in to, to help them through that time frame, obviously, where there was a lot of anxiety and unknowns. Um, but I think your, your, your day-to-day 
actions also played a role in developing them. They, they already knew you'd been there before and they, they knew to follow you for the right reasons. I, I talked to some folks uh, when I, when I came back to B company third battalion as a, as a young Lieutenant, uh, as a second Lieutenant, um, there, there was some acceptance of me into the platoon because I was prior enlisted because I had been on a deployment before. So I, I, I never tried to, overvalue that. Um, I, I, I tried to be you know, the best platoon leader I could, but I, I knew people looked at it like, hey, you know, L- Lieutenant Moores has has deployed. He's been here before. Yeah. He stood in my shoes. And, and there, there was there was value when, when I was leading because of that. Yeah. I had a lot of bosses that I looked up to, but I would place you up at the top and for a couple of reasons. So I wanted to fast forward through this part, and I'm glad you just mentioned it. You didn't stay as an, enlist, as an enlisted guy in 1st Ranger Battalion. There was a point where you decided to transition, go through officer candidate school, become a lieutenant, and eventually you showed up as my boss in 3rd Ranger Battalion as my platoon leader. But very briefly, what prompted you to transition from enlisted to becoming an officer? I had always had an interest in, in, in getting a commission. My brother was a, um, a West Point mm-hmm. graduate, as I had said earlier. Um, when I was a young E4 in the first Ranger Battalion, we had come back from Grenada. I had gone to Ranger school the first class after we redeployed. Wow. And I had applied to the, I had applied to the prep school uh, to go uh-huh. to West Point. My brother was a senior uh, at the academy at the time, so we were able to get my packet through um, the channels at West Point for a review before it was submitted. Um, and then I received the standard, um, sorry, we're not going to accept you letter in the mail. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, all that work was, uh, yeah. was for not, I guess. Um, but I, I, I always had that, that desire and it was timing. I, I really enjoyed being a, a Ranger NCO and I was able to go back to first time for a second tour. Um, and it was, it's a tougher transition than people think. Um, it is. You know, it I, is. I, I had wanted to go. I was told, hey, you're not ready. Uh, so I, I continued to, to work as an NCO, enjoyed my time. And then finally uh, was able to get into officer candidate school right before the, the 10 year cutoff uh-huh. um, and, and, and was able to get back to the Rangers fairly quickly. Yeah. You already know this, but for the listener, there is something qualitatively different about an, a leader, especially a commissioned officer who has served as an enlisted person before. Um, and it's noticeable in the way that they they lead. So when you showed up, Larry, to the platoon and took over as our platoon leader and our boss, um, all of us kind of looked to you because of your enlisted background and your experience in Grenada, we automatically gave you respect. But you know this, Larry, that respect only takes you so far. The history and the, you know, the experiences from the past, they only take you so far from, from there's a point where you're going to have to start to prove and continue to prove that you're worthy to lead those guys. And you did that exceptionally well. Um, I appreciate that. Um, and again, I, I think coming in uh, to, to that platoon, um, it, it was made easy because of the, the good NCOs and the team that we had together. Um, but it also allowed me to uh, to focus on on being a good lieutenant. I, I didn't have to worry about yeah. what was going on in the platoon because I knew what Specialist Jones was supposed yeah. to be doing because I'd already been there. I, I knew what the squad leaders, I, I knew the roles and responsibilities, so I just had to focus on on being a good lieutenant and leading well. And I, 
I, I tried my best to do that and not get in other people's way. So. Well, so now describe for the listener the timing between you showing up to this platoon in Third Ranger Battalion and this platoon getting deployed to Somalia because it was a pretty short uh, flash to bang for you, right? It was fairly quick. Um, I, I showed up, um, I guess, February, March of, of 93, went to Korea for Team Spirit. We had mm-hmm. a series of deployments uh, back-to-back um, overseas, uh, got back from Thailand in the summer, um, and then um, were on another mission fairly quickly after that. Um, again, I, I, I understood a lot of the Ranger work yeah. uh, and, and the JRXs and the stuff that we were doing, uh, but it was it was fairly quick uh, from, from that initial uh, jump into Korea to a, a train up for a real world mission while we were at Fort Bragg. Yeah. So my wife still believes that all of this was bogus and it was just designed to hide the fact that we were getting ready to deploy to combat. Um, but you went, we went, uh, as a battalion to do a training exercise in Texas and, and were there for, for quite some time before getting called out of Texas to go fly to the East coast and, and put this team together with very little notice. And, um, at this point you have integrated into the unit. Well, just because of how intense the training cycle is, but you're still, uh, you know, a relatively new platoon leader, right? That's correct. Yeah. About six months. Uh, so, uh, it was a, a fast turn and, and we did a lot of training back then. So it was one, one training exercise yeah. after one, uh, deployment. So it was, it was a, it was a pretty constant turn. It was easy to transition in because of how busy you stayed. There are a couple of moments with you as my boss that stick out in my mind. There's one or two of them in training where you really, really coached me and led me well, but there's a moment that sticks out to me as we were preparing to go to Somalia. And we talked about this just briefly. I really want people to hear this because I think almost everybody finds themselves in this really uncomfortable situation where we as a unit are preparing to go to Somalia and there's some decisions that are being made and you as our boss have to kind of confront, if not confront, then disagree with our commander, with your commander. And I watched you do that. Um, I watched you do that from a distance and I was just blown away by what you did for us. So can you, in you know, some delicate terms, just describe what it was like to have to confront your commander and kind of put your put your job on the line, put your rank on the line, and maybe even fall on your sword a little bit for your troops. Well, I I think uh, wholeheartedly that you know taking care of troops is our number one mission, no matter what role we're in. So I was a lieutenant at the time, and and my responsibility was everybody in in third platoon, and and. I felt uh, with the transition of missions and everything that was going on during that initial train up um, that we were better suited for uh, specific missions. Uh, and, and I wanted to make sure that that, that was known by you know, the, the leaders that were making that decision. Um, so I, 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 I voiced my opinion and it, at some point you, you voice your opinion, you let it be known um, and then you, you go forth and execute. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think our team, uh, you know, did, uh, admirably well uh, given the circumstances and and i've always said you know rangers are very flexible based on the training foundation that they have and their their ability to 
to move from one mission set to another uh, because of their fundamentals and that, that foundation yeah. that's built with repetition over and over and over again. Yeah. As I watched you and listened to you stand up and kind of defend your troops and argue uh, against your, your boss, I, I earned or I, I developed the greatest respect for you. Now, I would have fallen, followed you um, had that not happened. But when I watched you stand up for us, that was the moment that I decided whatever he needs from me, whatever he asks of, of my squad, he's got it because I know this man cares, for, cares enough for us that he's willing to stand up and put it all on the line for us. I, I think... There's, there's a lot of value in the leadership role and the mentorship role with the elements that you work with. But, but part of my responsibility in that role also is as a buffer between my people and the, and the, the decision makers. Uh, and I have to, uh, I have to stand up and, and I have to uh, push back sometimes and I have to withhold sometimes just so um, I am the one in the middle who's somewhat of a, a lightning bolt that, that, that does what's right for the unit, uh, whether, it has a direct impact on you guys or not. Yeah. Uh, so. I, I really hope that the person that's driving right now, listening to this episode or who's watching it, that mid-level manager who's in this really uncomfortable situation and they're, they feel like, uh, I need to say something to my boss, but by saying something to my boss, I'm putting a lot on the line. In fact, I might get, might get fired if I do this poorly or if my boss just reacts wrong. Um, and I'm hoping they're listening to you and they're hearing, I can't promise you how things are going to turn out, but I can promise you that the people that you're standing up for, they're going to notice and it will make a huge difference. Larry, I will to, for the rest of my life, uh, respect you for the fact that you stood up for us when you didn't probably didn't want to, and you didn't have to, but you did for us anyway. I appreciate that. I, and I did have to, that, that, that was my role. So yeah. It's, it's a little bit different from different angles. Uh, I was told a couple different times during that deployment that I was going to be put on a, a resupply aircraft back to the U.S. Yeah, you're going to get sent back to the I States. I held my ground and yeah. it stayed the whole tour. So. Well, I, I, when I speak to audiences, there are one or two names that I always mention, and yours is one of them. And um, we said this just before the episode started this is the moment for me that you went from being my boss and my leader to being a mentor and a guy that I really, really wanted to emulate. Um, just watching you and again, not even really saying anything to your face about it, but just watching you from a distance and respecting highly who you are and what you stood for. You, you became a mentor to me that I spent a lot of time trying to live up to that kind of uh, reputation that you set for me. I think it goes back to our earlier discussion, Jeff, you know, the, 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 the similar role that I sat in, you know, 10 years prior in, in Grenada yeah. and the mentors, the, the ones that meant so much and that, that brought me back home. Uh, you know, I always had a feeling that if I could put the same time and energy into mentoring and leading that they did for me, if I could get through to 80, 85%, cause I knew I couldn't match them. They were so right. good. Um, and, and I was getting the exact results I, I needed. And, and again, it's, it's comforting to know that I, I always tried to, uh, lead from the front. Yeah. I, I tried to do the right thing. I tried to have that calm, uh, personality where it wasn't Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. You didn't, 
you guys, I always thought you knew what you were getting because yeah. I tried to be uh, pretty approachable and, and, and calm even when things were going wrong. Well, I want to talk about the Humvee right next to me on the streets, on National Street in Somalia in just a second, and the two unflappable leaders, and I use that term intentionally, but before we do that, this is the perfect moment to talk about a mentor because this is the first time that I really saw what I was looking for in a mentor when I watched you in the train up as we got ready to go to Somalia And I think there are some guys and gals out there that are listening that are saying, I need a mentor, but I don't even know where to start. So I do this high five segment. We talked about this ahead of time, and I would love for us to just bounce back and forth on qualities or what are the things that you would say you look for in a mentor, especially for that guy or gal that's listening that's saying, all right, I know I need one. But I, and I don't have one, I don't know what to look for. So what would you look for in a mentor? Or what do you look for in a mentor, Larry? I think one of the first things is someone, someone who's approachable, someone who, who you have some common interests with that, uh, whether it's a unit, whether it's work, whether it's um, uh, additional duty that you have where you can link and share common interests and goals and not always just specific to your, uh, your, your, your work grind, yeah. uh, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, so there, there's value there. I think where, when they see you outside of the environment, um, where your desk is located, uh, and see the whole person. Yeah. I love the word approachable. I was going to use the word that they had, they were humble and they had the attitude where they were willing to listen as much as they're going to talk. Like I want a mentor that's going to give me advice, but I need a mentor that's willing to listen honestly to what's going on so that the advice that they give me is the advice that I really need to hear, um, not just what they want to say. And that comes from being approachable. One of the things I think that's at the top of my list is I need a mentor that has experience. And this is why you became that mentor to me. You were a guy who had gone down a road that I hadn't gone down before And when I wanted to become a mentor, I realized, all right, I've gone down a road. I'm going to help somebody else go down that road. And at the top of my list is I need a mentor that's got not just experience, but the kind of experience that I'm looking for, the kind of wisdom from that experience that I want to learn from. Um, What about you? What else would you look for? Um, I think another one that's pretty high is that there's an interest in me from that mentor. And I think you can see that, you know, you, you don't want to try and approach a mentor that's somewhat unapproachable, like yeah. I mentioned. So, so uh, I like, I like this person. I like what he stands for and I like the experience that he has, but if he doesn't, if, I can't force myself on him so he could be my mentor. Right. Uh, if, if that makes sense. That's I, right. There has to be a mentor mentee relationship where there's a, there's an interest from both parties to make that successful. Yeah. As you're driving along listening to this episode, Larry and I, our lists are almost exactly the same because that was on my list of qualities that I'm looking for in a mentor. And in this high five list of mentor qualities, I want to put up there the character of the individual. By this, I mean their integrity and their um, their trustworthiness. Just because you have a couple of experiences and they went your way doesn't mean you're the kind of guy or gal I want to model my life after. And a mentor to me is somebody that I really wanted to model my life after. And for me, character 
and experience are both non-negotiables. So anything else on your list? And I think, you know, lastly, I, I'd have to go with the, you know, the, the genuine interest. So someone who really has that heartfelt, um, and, and you can tell, you know, some people will, will say, hey, I'll be, uh, we, we've had this relationship for a while and, and, and give me a call if you need something. <laughs> yeah. There's people who say that and there's people who, who really mean, mean it, that. Right. You know, so I think that genuine part really means a lot. When, and there are certain people, and you know them very well, um, that if you needed something this afternoon and you made a phone call, that, that they would answer and they would do whatever they could to, uh, to make that happen. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. In fact, our lists are almost totally identical. I'm looking for a leader that has that genuine interest in me and they care enough about me. I'm going to use this term carefully that they're willing to give me some feedback, even some painful feedback when I need to hear it. I just want you to give me the feedback in a way that I can receive it and don't just, you know, uh, uh, blow me up because of it, but, but say the hard things that I need to hear, just say it in a way that I can hear it and learn from it and grow from it instead of just, uh, you know, telling me you're stupid and you need to figure this one out. So, um, yeah, I think you and I, and I think the, you know, the Rangers do that well in that environment that we grew up in, you know, the, the AARs yeah. and the feedback you got from leadership. Sometimes it was kind of brutally honest, but, but it, it got you focused on what you needed right. to change to make yourself better. Yeah. So in this mentoring high five segment, the only reason I'm doing this is because for the listener, I'm having the honor. One of the privileges of hosting a podcast is to be able to talk to some of my heroes. And Larry, you're not just a mentor to me, but you're a hero. Um, And it's the way that you reacted and led when the bullets were flying in Somalia. I watched you. I listened to you. I followed you because of the way that you led um, and you earned my respect in the t- tough training that we did and the hard decisions to stand up for your men before we got to this, to Somalia. But when the bullets are flying, man, I, I, I watched you and I had the greatest respect for the two unflappable leaders in that Humvee in front of me in the city streets on national street, most of the night in Somalia. So um, you, I'm going to let you tell this part of the story. You want to describe kind of how we ended up, your platoon ended up in Somalia on Humvees. I, I could spend lots of time talking about why we were on Humvees instead of helicopters. We won't go there, but on Humvees <laughs> on true. the city streets um, and your role on October 3rd and 4th in Black Hawk Down. Well, it's interesting. You, you mentioned the, how we ended up in the Humvees. So that's a, a fun dynamic. Yep. Um, uh, we were not the, the Humvee element. We were the jump clearing team. So we spent very little time with Humvees and that's back to some of those decisions that were happening at Fort Bragg and, uh-huh. and, and those uncomfortable uh, back and forth. Um, we, we adapted well and, and we, we did well when, when it counted. Um, so the, the train up um, everything with the deployments, uh, you know, our ability to be successful, we, we brought in some folks from weapons platoon to work mm-hmm. with our, you know, Martin 19s and 50 cals who, who did, you know, tremendous work. Uh, but, but I think that was built on, you know, the, the time frame leading up to the third and fourth of October, our, our five, six weeks before that, where we were able to train hard, we were able to set up ranges. Yeah. We were able to, we were able to make our rangers better because we tested them in all kinds of different environments. We, we went to ranges all the time. We, we used demo charges. We, we tested different capabilities and, 
And we spent a lot of time on the streets uh, trying to figure out where different parts of the city were more or less receptive to who mm -hmm. we were and, and why we were there. So, and, and that paid big dividends as different missions started to be uh, put upon us uh, in different parts of the city. Yeah. Um, you were on a, another mission doing business on the other side of town when the call went down to launch the assault force to go take down the building. So you didn't get a chance to roll out with your platoon immediately. Um, I, I don't think you and I've had a chance to have this conversation. I, I, I sit back and I think that must've been maddening for you hearing that the first few minutes of that fight on the radio and not being there with them. Um, describe a little bit about the timing between the, the assault force launching onto the target and you linking up and, and heading back out in the city streets. Sure. Yeah, I, I agree. It was probably the longest 30 minutes I spent down there. Um, again, not being able to have an impact where yeah. I was supposed to be having an impact. Yeah. Um, but, but completely understood our roles and missions uh, as part of the task force as well. Every day, and, and you remember it well, mm -hmm. every day we had a mission somewhere in the city and whether it was a, a, a resupply escort or a VIP escort or just environmentals in the city. So uh, there was some of our vehicles were rolling uh, on a constant basis. Uh, and that day, um, because it was my turn, uh, that, that's where I was. Um, so we, um, we were on our way back to the airfield. Um, if it was my decision to make, um, I would have held everything for right. 30 minutes because now I can, <laughs> right. I can look into the crystal ball and understand that 30 minutes wouldn't have made a huge difference. Um, but we didn't, um, I, I was in the jock immediately. Um, I was working with the, the folks, uh, at the unit, um, you know, with general Garrison's team, uh, and, and saw some of the initial events unfold, um, through some of the, the live feed footage, um, had somewhat of a better understanding, I think, uh, because I saw some of those initial yeah, movements right. unfold as you were uh, on your way back to the airfield and when, when we linked up. So it was, it all happened fairly quickly. Um, but I think that that timing of it and, and getting to see and getting some guidance from uh, senior leadership that were, that were very poignant in, in how I could get inserted quickly uh, into the fight and, and help because it was, evident early on that day that it was a different mission and, yeah. and that there was going to be a different outcome. Um, so, um, you know, it, it did change quickly. Uh, and then because of our knowledge of the city and our ability to move, maneuver, uh, we were able to get back out there fairly quickly and, and try and get to uh, those two crash sites. Yeah. There, so there's a moment when I come back to the base, I'm dropping off Todd Blackburn, who's wounded and Dominic Pilla, who's dead. And you walk up to me and, kind of give me the mission to um, do the navigation and to take this patrol out to the Durant crash site. And you're going out there with us because you weren't, uh, you were across town when we launched to go out on the assault or on the target the first few minutes. And I, I, I wanted you to know that it sat different with me knowing that you were going to be in those Humvees or, uh, right beside me. Um, in fact, a time or two in the Humvees scraping up against me or bouncing off of the walls yeah. next to me, but it made the world of difference knowing that you, my boss, who I respected and trusted was going to be right next to me in the city streets instead of across town. That made a big impact on me. And I think a lot of other Rangers from your platoon. And that, that initial launch when we went to Durant's crash site as well, yeah, those were routes that we had already taken 
based on previous missions. So we, we had been there, we ran into some yeah. obstacles, some roadblocks, the, the dynamics had obviously changed because they knew, you know, where those aircraft had gone in and, and where they needed to get to. So they, they did everything they could to keep us from getting from point A to point B when we felt it was a pretty, pretty, uh, pretty simple movement to get up there. There were two voices on the radio net all night long. You stayed out there until nine o'clock the next morning. Um, in fact, uh, for the listener, fun fact, Larry's Humvee and mine, I think, were the last two Humvees to actually leave the city and make it back to the Pakistani uh, soccer stadium sometime after everybody else made it back there because we were loaded down with people. Um, but there were two voices over the radio that were calm, that were under control, and that uh, I think brought a sense of stability to the rest of the guys that were freaking out and, you know, overwhelmed by hundreds, if not thousands of, of bad guys right around us. And that was you and the other person in the Humvee right next to you, Major Craig Nixon. And those two voices had a big impact on me. And I tried to remain calm and lead like I was learning from and listening to you during that fight. Um, so, I want to just compliment you on your ability to stay calm in the midst of chaos for 18 hours. Again, that's one of those roles where um, people want guidance, but they don't want back and forth guidance. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, you know, our, our training up to that point had, had done a very good job of getting it to us. It, it's obviously uh, a lot more heightened, um, but those kind of comments from, uh, from you, from from some of the peers, from some of the uh, leadership in the jock, um, were very comforting to know that hey, we we trained hard, we we worked hard, but we we were effective because of our systems and our abilities in place. Uh, so that was that was good to know. It, it was a huge uh, team effort, and and knowing that um, the guidance from higher, uh, the guidance going down to our our subordinate leadership was was on that same, yeah. uh, same vein and, and, and people understood what the mission was. Yeah. So I'm sure everyone has figured out at least one of the two unflappable leaders in the Humvee next to me in Somalia was you. And if you missed it, that other leader was major Craig Nixon and watching you and him that night, two of you in the same Humvee commanding and controlling and staying calm in the midst of chaos. I just used a lot of words that start with C um, but that had a big impact on me. So can we talk for just a second about Craig Nixon and how incredible he led, it, you know, just thrown into this thing at the last second in, um, you know, on those city streets for a few minutes? Yes. Uh, again, Craig was one of those, um, a, a brand new major. He, I believe he got promoted while we were down there. So he was, um, his new rank uh, really put it to test. Uh, but having him there and, and being able to communicate with, the uh, the C two bird above us with yeah. the jock you yeah. know, to to relay that where I could focus on leading the platoon and he could do the senior leadership work. Uh, I, I thought it was a good team and and we were able to you know that that fight once we left the Newport facility was a uh, was a a long uh, laborious fight yeah um, you know from the minute we rolled out of the gate so uh, having having that 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 leadership and, and connectivity to help us with the fire support with our movement with, with everything that we needed at that point was, uh, was, uh, very effective, uh, and, and, and made our jobs easier, uh, in a, in a very difficult situation. Yeah. 
there's a couple of guys that I would not have been able to lead well through the big fight in Somalia if it wasn't for them. And two of those guys were right next to me, you and Craig Nixon, the two unflappable leaders in that Humvee next to me. And I just want to, again, say, I watched you, I listened to you, I learned from you. And on the spot, I tried to emulate you or follow the kind of leader that you were with my men in the Humvees right next to you. And, um, if it wasn't for you, I think uh, a lot of people would have lost control. There would have been a, hot, a lot more panic and a lot of people losing control during that fight. Yeah, the, the, the young kids really uh, did amazing. The, they did. The, yeah. you know, the, the, this is the first deployment for a lot of these uh, young rangers. And, and, and again, that, that training foundation and their, their leaders above them uh, really set a tone uh, they, they gave them the guidance they needed. They, they understood what the mission was to get to those crash sites. But, you know, I, you know, the, the young Terry Butler's the, the yeah. 18 years old, uh-huh. um, you know, these are, these are instances that 18 year olds shouldn't have to go through. Um, but they did amazing and they, you know, they, they, they followed the guidance that they got. Yeah. And, and, you know, we're, we're talking today because of all those kids absolutely. who who pulled more than their share. Yep. Absolutely. You stuck around the army for a long time after Somalia. Um, you had a big, uh, you, you continue to make a big impact all the way into the global war on terrorism. Can we talk for just a couple of minutes about the latter half of your career and how things ended up or where you uh, kind of ended your career? Sure. Um, I, again, I, I, I really enjoyed the time with the Rangers. I, I, I went on to Fort Bragg um, and, and we were there uh, again mm-hmm. together. <laughs> we had this, this, uh, uh, common occurrence of, of crossing paths on numerous, numerous occasions. Yeah. Uh, um, I commanded in the 82nd uh, and then got an amazing opportunity to go over to JSOC uh, in, in 2000 uh, at the end of the year. General Kearney, uh, who was our commander in 3rd right. Battalion after we got back from Somalia, um, who, who I respect to the utmost, um, he called me one day and asked me to come over and interview to be the uh, the aide and the exec to the CG for the Joint Special Operations Command. And it really was an amazing opportunity. He, he, he told me, he said, I, I never wanted to be a, an, an aide uh, when I was your rank. Uh-huh. But if I had to be one, um, I'd want to be one for this guy. So uh, I, I went over and interviewed. Um, it really was a whirlwind. Uh, I interviewed on a Thursday I guess the boss was looking for someone that was a little older and experienced. So I, I had those two things go for me. Yeah. Um, and then I believe I told him something about being super organized and, and I had a lot of systems I could put in place. <laughs> so I had to figure those out yeah. real fast. So I, right. I interviewed on Thursday, got hired on a Friday and like the following week I left uh, for Europe uh, on a 10 day trip. Um, and it was just a whirlwind after yeah. that, but it, it was really a, a remarkable experience. And, and then fast forward to another JRX uh, that summer uh, of uh, 2001, uh-huh. um, and we we were in Europe uh, again, and um, you know 9/11 happened, and, right. and you know you know being um, a, a captain, you know young major, uh, being a fly on the wall with the you know, the, the JSOC command team, yeah. uh, being able to be in all the all the meetings, um, all the briefings in the Pentagon and in Washington, D.C., and with all the units before we deployed, it really was a tremendous time to, to be there. So uh, I, I always talk about that that sequence that we talked about in Grenada earlier and then Somalia. Yeah. 
But I remember sitting at a table in Oman. It was uh, shortly after we arrived, before the first missions were getting conducted. And and three of the former platoon leaders yeah. from a B company were all sitting at the same table <laughs> as, as captains wow. and majors in different roles. Yeah. But the same people, the same units. Yeah. The, you know, it was it was really uh, really powerful to to see that, and we, we talked about that mentorship and yeah. leadership, and that that community does it as well as anybody. Yeah, you um, led me. Um, because after September 11th, I'm on Fort Bragg at the same time that you are, I'm a chaplain in the 82nd and the war is just getting ready to get started. And you and I crossed paths and you kind of gave me some thoughts and some advice and a way to consider what this war is going to look like and how much different it will be than the ones before it. And I needed to hear that from you. So you were still mentoring me years and years later. Yeah. Again, I, I think that's a, you know, for the, like you said, for the people that are riding along this morning, the, the, the mentorship doesn't stop when you change jobs or the other person changes up. Yeah. The, the, the lifelong mentorship roles and responsibilities uh, always continue on, um, you know, the, the, the bonds that are built in, in the fights that we went through uh, are, uh, are, are solid uh, like no other. So you, know, you have that, that foundation that, that built that connectivity. Yeah. So I, I think you know, more than, and again, I'm not saying that the mentorship that works in an office environment isn't successful, but ours is solidified through shared hardships. Yeah. And, and I think the, the tougher the hardships, the, the, tough, the tighter the bond that we build. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the perfect segue. After you retired from the army, you continue to serve, you continue to lead and to mentor others as the executive director of the Three Rangers Foundation, which is, by the way, one of my favorite um, charities and foundations to support. So describe the Three Rangers Foundation to people that have never heard the name before. Sure. The Three Rangers Foundation is a, a fairly new uh, nonprofit that directly supports the 75th Ranger Regiment. So it, it works uh, a few different programs. The mentor transition program is one of the big ones where uh-huh. the, the, the former Rangers link directly with Rangers that are separating and, and leaving the military to help them with that transition. So that's a big one. They have a Gold Star program. Um, and then a couple of other programs with the Ranger for Life. Uh, so very successful uh, and growing. Um, Sergeant Major Mike Hall is the, uh-huh. the, the new executive director and is taking it to a whole other level with his connectivity and linkages with the regiment and the, and the community and, and the business world. So it's, it's fun to see all the positives that are growing out of it. Um, their, their annual golf tournament um, is in a few weeks uh, up in the Northern Virginia area, yeah. uh, Gaithersburg, Maryland, I believe is the location. So uh, again, another, another great event that they put on uh, helping with the, the transitioning Rangers. Yeah. This is my number one military charity right now that I am so passionate about. And when this episode ends, by the way, for all of the listeners, don't tune out right away because I'm going to tell you about how I'm trying to raise uh, around $50,000 this year to give to the three Rangers foundation, because I believe so much in what they're doing. Um, Larry, as we wrap up, I, you made a statement that really stuck with me and it's about helping prepare yourself for adversity 
It's about leading people well through adversity. And I think there are folks that are listening to this podcast and they're saying, all right, I want to be the kind of person that can lead well through adversity, but I don't know what it takes to do that. And I, I want you to just give people some advice on how to prepare themselves today or to prepare their team today for the adversity that may be coming a week from now, or it may be a year from now, but it's coming. And how can you prepare today for that adversity that may be on the way? That's a, a great question, and, and you know, you know, good timing. Um, I think the you know, the biggest thing is the is that the development blocks and how that's all put together. So the formative years, uh, as you're as you're going through your your youth, your schooling, your your initial training, uh, those challenges that you put yourself through, uh, again, different levels based on different responsibilities. Right. Um, adversity is based on the environment that you're currently in. Uh, and it changes as you get older and grow. I, I do some work at the school where my children go, and I talk to the the athletes and the captains of sports about adversity. And high school adversity is a little different than college right. adversity or or first job adversity. So it's all based on the where you are in that that lifeline. I'm not saying that high school adversity is not difficult for people, but um, it, it it usually gets uh, a little more difficult as you go through your transitions and and then later on with families and all the other dynamics that you put into that. But, but I think the biggest part of it is having the fundamentals uh, and, and building on that, that, that formation of your, your leadership abilities and, and reading, reading, reading yeah. um, over my shoulders is, is some of my, my, uh-huh. my preferred reading lists. I see them. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I will pull those off the shelf and go through them again. If, you know, if you haven't read, once an eagle lately oh, is yeah. always a great one to, to pull off the shelf and, and and dig through it again because there's so many great lessons that we can learn from reading about history so we right. don't have to repeat them. Uh, but I think that's a big piece, having that foundation. And I mentioned it about the Rangers before. The Rangers are very flexible in their mission sets because of their foundation because when they do a, a airfield seizure, they do onload, offloads, um, I always wondered why we had to do those all night long. Yeah, all night long, right? <laughs> uh, but but they're good at it because they do it so much and they, they do the repetition and they, they're they're very good at, at at shifting from one mission to another because they have a, a foundation. And it's the same same in your life. If, if you put the time forth, if you listen to the, you know, they pick a series of podcasts that you want to grow from. Um, so get the leadership podcast, do your reading take some additional sessions on, on leadership challenges. And then, and then the, the, you know, the testing aspect of it too, uh, you know, your, your physical being, you're, you're, you're testing yourself physically and personally and mentally. Um, so that's, that's all a part of that. And, and again, the, the three Rangers team um, has that same mindset. Yeah. We, we have to make sure we're, we're physically sound, we're mentally sound, we're fiscally sound with our, our finances and our responsibilities um, and then you're able to to reach out and, and be that mentor and be that leader because your foundation is solid. I'm learning from you still um, years and years later. So I just took down three notes and I hope that the person that's driving, you don't have to stop driving and try to write or while you're driving, but I hope those three lessons that you just heard from Larry are going to stick with you. If you want to be the kind of leader who can lead people well through adversity, well, you've got to be able to master the fundamentals if your team hasn't mastered the fundamentals, things are going to fall apart when it gets tough. 
You have to be a leader who continues to grow. And as Larry described it, you're growing by learning and reading and continuing to stretch yourself. And then finally, you have to be the kind of guy or gal who's not afraid to do some hard stuff now because that hard stuff now will prepare you for the even harder stuff that may be coming down the road. Larry, I've said it about five times during this episode, but I have been looking forward to this because you're not just a boss that I had the privilege of serving with, but you're a guy who I have learned a lot from and tried to model my life after. So thanks for taking some time out of your schedule and being with me on this episode of Unbeatable. I really appreciate it, Jeff. I, I, I looked as much forward to this as you did, and, uh, and these feelings are, are mutual. Um, they were great times uh, with great people, and, and, and your impact on the community continues to grow as well. So let's, uh, let's continue to stay out there. Let's stay visible and, and, uh, and lead them the way that we were trained. Absolutely. Hey, there you have it. All of us will face adversity, and there's a way to prepare yourself today for adversity. You just heard three very profound ways to prepare yourself or your team today before adversity hits. You can tell that I respect Larry Moores and thank the world of this guy. And I just want to say thanks. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Unbeatable. Maybe you found this podcast for the first time. Why don't you go ahead and follow us on social media? You can find us pretty much everywhere by just searching for at Unbeatable Podcast. And if you've been listening for a while and you really like what you're hearing, why don't you rate us on your favorite podcast platform and tell everybody what you think about this podcast. And by the way, before you go, I prepared this free resource. I call it the Unbeatable Army Survival Guide. And the only thing that you got to do to get this free PDF download is just simply go to unbeatablearmy.com. Hey, it was an honor to introduce you to a leader and a guy that I respect, Larry Morris. And I can't wait to introduce you to next week's guest on Unbeatable. Tune in next week.